Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio today are two political science professors from the College of Charleston, Gibbs Knotts and Jordan Ragusa. They have just produced a very interesting book entitled First in the South, Why South Carolina's Presidential Primary Matters. Gentlemen, welcome to the journal. Thank you. Thank you for having us. All right. Why does the South Carolina primary matter? And Jordan, I'm going to hit you first. Well, uh, it matters for a few reasons. I mean, one is that, you know, it's a very diverse state in democratic contests. And for a party that um, cares a lot about diversity, it's important that you have a state like South Carolina front-loaded to balance out both Iowa and New Hampshire. On the, Demo- on the Republican side, there's also um, a lot of diversity, but a different type of diversity. Um, we're talking about different kinds of Republican voters. South Carolina is a very representative state uh, when we look at Republican voters nationally. And so for those two reasons, you know, we think that, that South Carolina plays a critical role in the race for the White House. All right. There, there's a story behind the South Carolina presidential primary. Uh, and of course, both of you know, historically, South Carolina had the first statewide primaries for local officials. In the progressive era of all things, South Carolina had gubernatorial primaries. But how did this presidential primary came about? It goes back to the 1970s. And uh, just just to remind folks, Democrats really dominated South Carolina politics in the 1970s. And the Republican Party was trying to figure out a way to, to, to make a mark. And Dan Ross, who was the GOP party chair at the time, thought, you know, we ought to have a presidential primary. Uh, and we ought to try to make it one of the first, if not the first primary in the South to kind of be the gateway for the rest of the South. And it was a bold idea. And the South Carolina Republicans went around uh, and kind of had a roadshow and got feedback from the different congressional districts uh, and, and brought it to the state convention and passed it and had the first primary in 1980. Ronald Reagan won the South Carolina primary. It was uh, kind of a surprising victory and, of course, went on to get the nomination and be uh, a, a largely successful two-term president. And, and really, the rest is history. But it, was, it wasn't the Democrats who were in really the most control in South Carolina that had the first primary. It was the Republican Party. And they did it to try to, you know, get more folks to consider Republicanism and and vote Republican. What were the Democrats' arguments for not having one? And we go, you know, Don Fowler was the key figure in the state Democrat and the National Democratic Party, and he was adamantly opposed. Yeah, there were some strategic considerations on the Democratic side of the aisle as well. Of course, you know, opening up a primary to regular citizens is kind of a risky proposition. And so some Democrats, including Fowler, reason that it would be a, a better strategic move for the party to maintain control over the nominee. Uh, Fowler also argued that there was potentially some uh, legal implications for holding a primary. It wasn't clear to him and some other folks whether having a primary would run afoul of, of state law. Um, ultimately, by 1992, Democrats recognize that the primary is a, a resounding success. And so today, both parties recognize its critical importance. Who pays for the primary? Does the state pay for that? The state pays for it. Initially, it was something when they when they first had the primary in 1980, it, would, it, was, the, it was the party. And so it was about a huge volunteer effort. That's one of the reasons the primary was on a Saturday was because they knew the, these local county officials could get folks to come and volunteer and, and work the polls. But uh, for the last few uh, iterations of the primary, uh, it's, it's paid for by the state. And, and, and again, it, it's certainly a, a big undertaking, you know, you know hundreds of thousands Thousands of people uh, participate in the primary, and, and it's a big effort to put on. Having it on Saturday, they, it was necessary uh, back in, in 1980. But gosh, if you really want voters to turn out, instead of on a work day like Tuesday, you have it on basically a holiday or a day when people could yeah. get off. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Saturday uh, has kind of been a unique feature. And it also, you know, because elections tend to be on Tuesdays, it would allow them to place a Saturday primary before an upcoming set of Tuesdays before the Super Tuesday primaries. And and that's what, you know, South Carolina jumped in front of a lot of the other southern states that now we call it the SEC primary after the football conference. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's a really good gateway to what's going to happen. And if you do well in South Carolina, it stands to reason you're probably going to do pretty well in Georgia and Alabama, two two states that have a lot of the same characteristics as South Carolina. First in the South, but clearly Iowa and New Hampshire. Nevada's out there somewhere, aren't they? 
Aren't, aren't they close? So Nevada is. Nevada, so there are four states that, that have carve-out status right now, and, and you've mentioned uh, all four of them, Nevada, Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina. In, in Iowa and New Hampshire, you know, Iowa's the first, first contest, but it's a caucus. New Hampshire's the first primary. But as Jordan said earlier, it is a it is really, really important, particularly on the Democratic side, to balance states like Iowa and New Hampshire that have very small minority populations. We expect uh, in the 2020 primary that over 60 percent of voters will be African-American. Uh, that's very, very different than what's going on in Iowa and New Hampshire, where you know, well less than probably 5% of voters are African-American. And so it's, it's, a, it's a very important balance. Uh, but the National Party has endorsed this idea of these four states getting special status to be able to go in front of the other states. And it, it provides some regional balance. There are states from different regions, and it provides some diversity. Nevada came into play because of the importance of Hispanic voters. And also, there are a lot of labor unions uh, folks working, and, and they felt like that was a group that would get some representation presentation with them getting an early early primary status. Okay. Is are those four state carve outs true for both parties? Yes, they are. Yes. Right. Yes. So, so again, you know, we, we talk at the end of the book about, uh, you know, how, you know, nothing's set in stone. Obviously, you know, things could change, but it's, it's you know, the, the, there's a huge commitment in the state of South Carolina, both on the Republican and the Democratic side, to, to be at the first southern state. And there's also uh, support from the national parties. Now, that wasn't always the case, but here in this day and age, the national parties uh, have endorsed this first in the South idea. Well, well, let's talk. Let's talk about why the national parties weren't real happy about this to begin with. And South Carolina, at one time, Republicans went against the national party, and it cost them delegates to the convention. Right. Right. So um, one of the things that is kind of curious about elections in our country is that there's not a lot in either the Constitution or in federal law that constrains the states in terms of determining their their own election calendar, um, the manner in which they conduct elections, whether they have primaries or caucuses. And so, you know, states can kind of unilaterally decide what date they want to have their primary. And all states recognize that being first is critically important. There are a lot of advantages to going first. We talk about some of those advantages in the book. But what you see from time to time is a state like Florida in in 2008 trying to leapfrog some of the earlier states. What can be done is nothing formal. I mean, Florida can't be formally sanctioned um, by the federal government constrained from doing that. But um, the DNC, the RNC can do things like strip them of their delegates. Um, strip them of prime hotel seats at the convention. <laughs> these sorts of things, oddly, um, matter a lot. And so there are really these kind of soft <laughs> tools that the parties can use to try to maintain order on the in the calendar and keep states like South Carolina first. <laughs> Putting them out of no-tell motel. That's right. <laughs> you know. Well, yeah, and one of the South Carolina Republican leaders said, I'd rather watch the darn thing on TV than give up our first in the South status. I mean, this has been something that people have fought really, really hard for. And it was almost comical at times. You know, Florida or Louisiana would jump ahead, maybe move to like February. 15th, and then South Carolina would jump 10 days ahead, and then they would jump 10. And it was kind of absurd that, you know, they were getting sometimes even in January. I think that happens less now. There seems to be a little bit of agreement that these four states will be first. But again, you know, to the the Republican Party and the Democratic Party's credit, they fought really hard to, to keep the first in the South title. All right. You mentioned Louisiana. That was an instance where uh, they wanted, they jumped ahead, but most of the candidates opted not to campaign, so it didn't make any difference that Louisiana. That's right. That Louisiana yeah, had. that's another thing that, I mean, so it kind of rests on the candidates themselves seeing the strategic value in having a set of states um, go first. And so it's, you know, it's not uncommon for candidates to agree not to campaign in a state that tries to jump ahead of the, the typical front runners. Um, but it's also the case that sometimes candidates make a strategic decision to skip a state entirely. Um, I think it was John McCain in, in 2000. And uh, eight that decided that he was going to skip over uh, Iowa and focus purely on on New Hampshire. Of course, the, the strategy worked out for him. He lost Iowa, but ended up winning New Hampshire and then won in uh, South Carolina. Okay. Well, one of the things that, that seems to be very important about the, the primaries in South Carolina is that both of them are open primaries. 
you don't have to register as a Republican to vote in that primary or a Democrat in, in the other one. And I know talking to people who've come to the state where they moved from, where you had to register for a party in South Carolina, if you register to vote, you do not, you are not required to declare your so, party. So when I started graduate school, I, I got my PhD at the University of Florida. And I, when I moved to Florida, I, I wasn't aware of the fact that Florida had closed primaries. And so when I got my driver's license at the DMV, they asked me, well, what party do you affiliate with? And I thought that was an odd question, not knowing about the, the state law. And so I, I, I told them my party affiliation. And of course, then I was restricted to voting only in that party's primary. Iowa and New Hampshire both have some limitations um, restricting voters based on party affiliation. South Carolina is unique. It's one of the few states that have fully open primaries where you don't have to declare at any point prior to voting which party you affiliate with. It's one of the things that we think makes South Carolina such a good barometer of what happens in other states, one of the reasons why it's so representative of voters nationally on the Republican side. But obviously, it can create some challenges. I mean, there's been a lot of talk over the years, some concerns about what's called primary rating, this idea that voters who identify with one party are going to vote in the other party's primary to create mischief. Generally, there's not a lot of evidence that that, that happens on a wide systematic basis and affects the ultimate outcome. But open primaries are another unique feature. They're, they have sort of pros, but also some challenges. In his first run for the presidency in South Carolina, John McCain appealed openly to other other voters, and he caught some flack. It didn't make any difference, but mm. right. Well, I think it was in in two thousand and eight. Rush Limbaugh was encouraging Republicans to vote in Democratic primaries. I think he called it his Operation Chaos. Um, he wanted to create some discord between Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama and, and keep the contest going as long as possible, under the assumption that the longer it goes on, the worse that it is for the eventual Democratic nominee. Of course, that didn't work very well. 2008, Barack Obama secured the nomination and became president. Okay. Gentlemen, we need to pause for a moment, let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Gibbs Knotts and Jordan Ragusa about their book, First in the South, Why South Carolina's Presidential Primary Matters. In discussing the primaries, you select four key primaries in each party. And I think for our listeners, it would be good to, to go back and talk about them, the earliest obviously being the 1980 Republican primary. Remind everybody who was running. It was quite a, a wide open situation. It was. It was interesting in 1980. Uh, Reagan had been California governor, but uh, didn't have a lot of establishment support. John Conley, senator from Texas, was running, and he was sort of maybe more of the establishment. Uh, George H.W. Bush was also running, but uh, it was it was a, it was a primary uh, where. Reagan was able to take his message. He was such a good campaigner and, you know, really good with the media and really connect with South Carolina voters uh, and was able to, you know, use the primary. We don't think that, you know, had there been a caucus, had there been some other type of nomination system, you know, Reagan probably wouldn't have done as well. But he was a person like Taylor made for for a primary and ended up winning in 1980. But John Conley comes in. He's Strom Thurmond's candidate. That's right. Yeah. So Strom Thurmond, and Strom Thurmond wasn't initially supportive of having a primary. He came on board. But, you know, it, there's evidence to suggest that it was a concern of Reagan that made him not want to have a primary. But, you know, he just wasn't able to get. And, and there is this element in South Carolina. It, it's a very establishment state in a lot of ways. It backed the Bush family a lot. It's been very friendly to that particular uh, family of politicians. But there's also, you know, uh, South Carolina can go against the grain. We see that with Reagan uh, we obviously saw that with Donald Trump in 2016. And so it was important in 1980 to have, you know, South Carolina pick the eventual winner. And, uh, you know, again, the mantra for the state GOP is we pick presidents. And really, other than the case of 2012, that, that they've, been, they've been correct in at least picking the nominee, if not the president. And that's a better track record than either Iowa or New Hampshire. That's exactly right. right. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty, pretty amazing. The only time, the only hiccup is 2012 when South Carolina GOP voters went for Newt Gingrich uh, from the neighboring state of Georgia, the former House Speaker, uh, over Mitt Romney, the eventual nominee. But other than that, uh, it, it's really a perfect track record. And, and we think that is the case because the, the South Carolina Republican Party has a mix of Republicans uh, and, 
and, and is extremely representative of the National Republican Party. When you looked at what what the National Republican Party looks like, it's 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 very similar to what goes on here in South Carolina. All right. Any other comments about 1980? You mentioned, in general, among the things that are key, you you have to have media exposure, money, endorsements. Being a neighbor helps, but I think the big three, you know, are yeah. endorsements, money, and, and media. And in 1980, John Connolly had, certainly he had endorsements and money. Did Reagan have the media coverage or? We, we actually, we don't have the, the data, the media data back to 1980. We start up in our analysis in, in 1988. Um, but I, I would imagine that Reagan at that point did have a fair amount of media uh, attention. Absolutely. Do you have more yeah. to say on that? No, absolutely. Yeah. George H.W. Bush at that time, his idea was to show how healthy it was. Because I remember he, he ran through our neighborhood. That's right. I've seen, <laughs> seen the pictures of he has the jogging, the 1970s jogging shorts. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you're exactly right. That was sort of his pitch. Didn't work for him. But it, wor- <laughs> it worked for him really well in 1988 and 1992. So Yeah. I mean, 1988 is an an important one in our book. I mean, one of the things that we talk about is, you know, what an advantage Southern candidates have in the South Carolina primary. And 88 is one of those cases where, you know, Bush from Texas um, seemed to do better than most people expected. Of course, Bush came in third in Iowa. Um, Bob Dole actually won. And and so a lot of people thought that maybe, you know, Bush was down and out. He came back and won in, in New Hampshire and then won in South Carolina and proceeded to do really well in some of the other Southern states. So, I think that his kind of southern credentials and southern roots really played well here. Okay, and and eighty eight is another one of those primaries that you consider. Right. All right, so you've got Dole, Bush. Who else is in the race at that time? So Pat Robertson is is also in the race. You know, the one of the kind of I think myths maybe that we dispel in the book is that evangelical candidates have an advantage in the in the South Carolina primary. I mean, certainly born-again Christians are a powerful force in the state, and we don't discount their role. Um, but what a lot of people have said is that evangelicals don't vote as a monolith in South Carolina, that they have a tendency to split their vote, and they vote as ideologues, not necessarily as churchgoers. So a lot of people thought that Robertson was going to do well in 88 in South Carolina, um, and he didn't. And of course, there are you know, other examples where an evangelical candidate like Ted Cruz did really well in Iowa, became in kind of a disappointing third in, in 2016. And Mike Huckabee did well in South Carolina. Mike Huckabee did well in South Carolina. I mean, there's, it's certainly the case that um, some evangelical candidates have done well, um, but they, what we're saying is we don't think that they do as well as most people would assume. But they haven't won the primaries That's in right. South Carolina. That's correct. That's right. Exactly. And yeah, and Jack Kemp's running in 1988, and he's you know really trying to take over and be kind of the 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 person who continues the Reagan Reagan legacy. But there was a wonderful quote quote from Ellen Warren, who was writing for The State. She says, his standard stump speech, larded as it is with references to Keynesian theory, Malthus, and Bretton Woods, almost always Bretton Woods, is probably the most information-packed of the 10 presidential contenders. It is, to put it mildly, heavy going. And so, you know, again, uh, you can imagine Jack Kemp, you know, the former football player and policy wonk going into some really detailed explanation of policy. And, you know, that did not, not shockingly, but did not connect with South Carolina voters in really any meaningful way. I'm sure when Bretton Woods, the eyes glazed over. And <laughs> anyway. That's right. <laughs> All right. We've taken care of the first two Republican primaries, yeah. 1980, 1988. Mm-hmm. Uh, where do we go for the, know, the The three that I think are noteworthy, and if you want to pick just one, two, or three, we're good. 2000 is interesting because it had the Confederate flag, McCain, Bush, got kind of ugly, uh, some some dirty tricks. Uh, 2012 was the one kind of the anomaly. We talked a little bit about that where they didn't pick the winner. And then, you know, we, we spend some time talking about 2016 just because of the – just kind of its most recent, probably uh, in people's minds, and, and and again, South Carolina got back on track picking the winner. So, I mean, so 2000 is notable for a number of reasons. I mean, Bush wins Iowa, but New Hampshire uh, McCain wins New Hampshire, and so it's South Carolina finds itself in sort of a familiar role, which is this tie-breaking role. New Hampshire and Iowa have a tendency to split their vote, um, so obviously, there's a lot of importance on South Carolina. 
you know, there's a question about the old guard versus kind of newer conservatives in South Carolina. McCain had the support of, of Lindsey Graham, who at that time was in the House of Representatives. You know, a lot of people thought that Bush was in a commanding lead heading into the 2000 primary, but some polling, um, uh, you know, a few weeks before the contest suggested that it was actually a tight race and maybe John McCain um, would win. Of course, the 2000 primary is most famous for some push polls that were targeting John McCain. A, a push poll is a an unscientific poll where really it's a campaign strategy to catch unsuspecting voters off guard with um, potentially fictitious information. Um, in this case, the allegation was that John McCain had fathered an illegitimate black child out of wedlock. Um, he and his wife had adopted a, a child from Bangladesh. And so that was a particularly nasty thing. And so some people have said, like, this is the quintessential example of really nasty politics that are typical of South Carolina. And I think one of the things that we've said is that it's it's maybe not so much a reflection of the type of voters that are in South Carolina. It's just its strategic importance. I mean, 2000 was make or break for both Bush and McCain. And so it kind of incentivized them to really kind of punch below the belt a little bit. I think if you put any state in that kind of a pivotal position, you would see the gloves sort of come off. Um, of course, Bush wins South Carolina. He does well in the remaining southern states and, and he sort of solidifies his position at the top. Isn't one of the reasons they thought that McCain had a real shot is because of the large number of military veterans in the state. That's right. I mean, they felt like this is a guy, certainly Vietnam War here, as somebody who would really resonate with South Carolina voters. And as Jordan mentioned, he had Lindsey Graham's backing. He had uh, Mark Sanford's backing. And so it was kind of an old guard versus new guard in South Carolina. But at the end of the day, the Bush name in 2000, you know, was just too strong. And, you know, again, he had some really good, he ran a really good campaign and he, he just had, had a better connection to South Carolina Republicans than McCain. And Lee Atwater was his campaign. Exactly. Lee Atwater, you know, who, you know, is was, was certainly known for his hard-nosed political tactics, cut his teeth. You know, he was working for Reagan back in 1980 and certainly really cut his teeth in South Carolina politics. Okay. And so we'll move on from 2000. Yeah, 2012 is a really interesting year. It's the one time where the South Carolina GOP got it wrong. They didn't pick the eventual winner, and and and, and it partly was Newt Gingrich's strong performance. I mean, he basically ran a good campaign. Uh, and he had some really good debate performances over a couple of debates late in the primary season, and uh, one the, in particular, yeah, the Myrtle Beach. Exactly, the one in particular where John King uh, started the debate and said, "You know, look, uh, there's been reports of you in an open marriage. Did you did you say you wanted an open marriage to your wife?" And Newt Gingrich just lit him up. I mean, he went after John King and said, "I can't believe the liberal media. I don't believe he." Use the term fake news there, but it was it was a delight to strong Republicans across the country, uh, but certainly here in South Carolina to take on CNN, to take on John King, and and that seemed to to help Newt Gingrich and, and sort of put him over the edge uh, in South Carolina. I do think there also, you know, again it was Romney who was the leader, but really never connected as well in South Carolina. He hadn't done well four years before, and, and didn't do particularly, or didn't do well when he ran in two thousand eight, and didn't do particularly well in 2012, but it did get the nomination. Okay. Gingrich won, wins the primary, but who who were the state establishment? They were backing Romney, right? Yeah, there was there was a good bit of support for Romney. You know, it, it wasn't it again, that was one where Gingrich had some support, but but Romney had the bulk of the endorsements in 2012. Okay. And now we come to the most recent one in 2016. 2016, the Donald wins. So, you know, one of the things that we talk about in the book is that one of the virtues of the South Carolina primary is that being a small state with kind of an accessible media market, it makes it possible for sort of less well-known non-establishment candidates to compete and potentially do well. And so, you know, if you look at someone like Jeb Bush, who's clearly an establishment favorite, you know, his brother and father had done really well in the South Carolina primary, you would think on paper that he's the odds-on favorite. You know, he had spent a, a massive sum of money prior to the South Carolina primary. $68 million. Well, I've heard even more. I've heard close to $100 million if you look at South Carolina, New Hampshire, and Iowa, and, and, and national media as well. I mean, that's a massive sum of money. Bush finished a distant fourth. I mean, he was really kind of an afterthought in the minds of a lot of voters. Um, 
And, you know, Donald Trump didn't spend hardly anything in South Carolina, and, and yet he won. And so for better or for worse, it makes it possible for candidates that aren't establishment favorites um, to do well. Um, you know, Cruz is a candidate that I think in South Carolina in 2016, a lot of people thought would, would do well. Of course, Ted Cruz won Iowa. Donald Trump came in second. Uh, and again, one of the things that we think is interesting in our book is that, you know, the conventional wisdom about evangelical candidates having such a sizable advantage in South Carolina maybe is not as true as most people um, think. And lastly, the thing that I thought was interesting about 2016 is Rubio's sort of surprising second place finish. I mean, a lot of people thought he was maybe one of those candidates, you know, headed for a fourth or a fifth place finish. He gets Nikki Haley's endorsement a few days before the primary, and that really catapults him into second place. You know, one of the things that we talk about is that, you know, in some, time, in some ways, a primary is not just about winning. It's about beating expectations, and Rubio beat expectations in South Carolina. It's one of the reasons why he was able to hang on and challenge Donald Trump for a, for a month after South Carolina. Okay. And, you know, interesting, Rubio also had Trey Gowdy and uh, Tim Scott's support. And so, you know, the three, you know, in some ways, you know, most up and coming Republican politicians uh, backed Rubio, probably helped him get second, but it didn't help him propel him into the lead. You know, Nikki Haley, she backed Romney in 2012. She backed Rubio in 2016. So, you know, she doesn't have the best track record uh, since being governor of picking the winner. Uh, But, you know, obviously she's made up with Trump since then and, and, and of course, got uh, the U.N. Uh, ambassador to the UN appointment. Uh, in, in fact, the only major state figure backing Trump, not just in South Carolina, but in the South, was Henry uh, McMaster. Right. Yeah. yeah. And Lieutenant Governor Henry McMaster, who was the first state politician to. That's right. And he's a pretty, you know, he's been involved with state politics for a really long time and and very involved with the South Carolina GOP. But, you know, he saw something in Trump. And, and, you know, when Trump appointed Haley, that, of course, allowed him to become governor. And then when he got to run uh, in 2018, he ran as an incumbent, which was a big advantage for Henry McMaster. And so uh, looking back, that was a key moment, uh, certainly in the South Carolina presidential campaign of 2016, but also in Henry McMaster's career. All right, and in in 2016, South Carolina was the tiebreaker again. Trump won New Hampshire. Cruz, Cruz won had won right. at one Iowa. That's right. That's right. And then and then and then Trump ended up doing really well in the South after the South Carolina primary, and of course went on and got the nomination. And so you know Trump, I think, surprised a lot of people. He certainly you know you know this this brash New York billionaire. You know you think how does that really play out in South Carolina? But I think he was connecting to some of that anti-establishment frustration that you know certainly you see. Nikki Haley in 2010 with the Tea Party movement. We saw it in 2012 with Gingrich in South Carolina in the primary and the way he took on CNN in that debate and John King. And so I do think there is a there is a kind of a that element of the South Carolina primary. And, and again, it was a chance for South Carolina primary voters to get back in the winning column by picking the eventual winner. Okay. All right. Any other comments about the the GOP now before we switch to the Democrats? No. Okay. All right. 1992, the first. Democratic primary? Yeah, so 1992 is another um, example where a, a, a Southerner, in particular a Southern governor, um, did re- really well in the South Carolina primary. You know, Clinton didn't win either Iowa or New Hampshire. I mean, usually what we see is that um, candidates who do well in South Carolina tend to at least win one of the, the two earlier states, but that actually didn't happen. Uh, 1992, Tom Harkin, who was a favorite son from Iowa, um, won there, and then Paul Songus actually won in in New Hampshire. Now, you Songus know, was from Massachusetts. Uh, yes, yes, yes. He was. Okay. Yeah, and um, and didn't Clinton run into some bad PR in New Hampshire as well? The Jennifer yeah, Flowers. I believe this Jennifer is right Flowers, when the Jennifer right. Flowers right. allegations came to light. I mean, he did finish in a kind of I think a lot of people thought it was a surprising second place finish. So you know that's one of those instances where sometimes it's not just important to win; you can lose, but if you beat expectations, that's sometimes just as good as a win. Um, but 1992 is the year that Georgia actually leapfrogged over South Carolina and moved up their primary. And so South Carolina did not have the first first in the South primary in that in that contest. Clinton, of course, won big in, in Georgia. He, he did really well in South Carolina, winning and then did well throughout the South, ultimately getting the nomination and becoming president. In 92, you know, I think Democrats had gotten pretty frustrated with Walter Mondale losing big in 84, Mike Dukakis losing big in 88. And so 
not only South Carolina Democrats, but for Democrats across the, the South thought, you know, we've got to have more of an impact. That's sort of the original Super Tuesday to try to say, look, you know, we need to have somebody who's a little more moderate to try to nominate them. If we, if we nominate somebody who's far to the left from the Northeast, they're probably not going to win nationally. And, you know, those types of plans did work out really well in 92 with Clinton winning across the South in the primaries, but also winning a few Southern states in the general election and, of course, becoming president. Okay. 2004. So we looked at 2004, and it was uh, it was exciting because, right, the first first in the South primary for the Republicans was all the way back in 1980. So it took 24 years for the Democrats to finally have a first in the South status on their, the Democratic side. And uh, John Edwards from neighboring North Carolina, who I think was born in South Carolina, uh, ended up campaigning really hard. John Kerry had won Iowa and New Hampshire, which is a hard thing to do. Uh, But Edwards was able to really connect for a while. Kerry was a little bit – he was a little bit unsure. Sometimes you thought he was campaigning here. Other times it looked like he wasn't going to prioritize the state. But in the end, Edwards ends up winning the South Carolina primary. It did not – catapult him to victory. Kerry ended up just having too many endorsements, too many resources as the establishment candidate. But he did pick John Edwards as his vice presidential nominee uh, in 2004. And it's the, you know, it's, it's a recent case uh, since the South Carolina Democrats have had a primary. There's been four primaries and they've gotten it right three or four times. It's the one exception. Uh, 1992, they picked Bill Clinton and Bill Clinton won. 2008, they went with Obama. 2016, with Hillary Clinton, but 2004 South Carolinians backed John Edwards and John Kerry was the nominee. He had the perfect endorsement, Hootie and the Blowfish. That's exactly right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he, had, he, he had Hootie and the Blowfish and Hootie and the Blowfish uh, obviously are you know, probably the most iconic group, uh, rock group in South Carolina. And so uh, it was a lot of fun. And he was, he was young and I think connected with a lot of the younger voters and did really well in the South Carolina primary. It just wasn't enough to sort of carry that momentum out of South Carolina. Yeah, in the book we code endorsements, uh, but it's usually state political figures and national political. We don't we don't code yeah. the Hootie and the Blowfish vote. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. For second edition, we'll have to say who has the cool rock band supporting these right. candidates, and we'll see if there's a rock band effect. Okay, let, let's move on to to 2008, where things got a little bit nasty in South Carolina. Okay, yeah. So so 2008 is obviously Barack Obama's victory in, in South Carolina, where he cinched the Democratic nomination and became president. You know, one of the things that's important about 2008 is that it demonstrates how critically important race is in Democratic contests. And one of the things we do in the book is we look at the demographics of Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada and compare them to South Carolina. Of course, South Carolina is the first state where you have a sizable African-American population. For the Democratic Party, that's critically important. You know, it also sort of exemplifies the fact that a non-establishment figure can compete and do well in a state like South Carolina. You know, Hillary Clinton was the um, establishment favorite in 2008. Most people expected her to do well and probably get the nomination. She had more of the the statewide endorsements, um, yet Obama won. One of the things I think that kind of, I guess, diminishes South Carolina's role a little bit in 2008 is it's one of the cases where South Carolina wasn't a perfect predictor of what happened in other southern states. You know, in the South in 2008, um, really there was a split between states that Hillary Clinton won and Barack Obama won. But but 2008 is kind of an exception in that case rather than the rule. Okay. One of the key figures in the Democratic primary for the last 20 years has been Representative James Clyburn. He sat 2008 out. He did. He has this long time relationship with the Clintons. And I think there was really frustration. And Clyburn in his book says that, you know, he got a call from Bill Clinton that basically said, you want to fight, I'm going to give you a fight. But, you know, it's it's so, you know, as influential as Clyburn is, I certainly understand, you know, not wanting to weigh in, not wanting to make an endorsement. But it is it is he was a person where things got pretty rough. And it was, again, this strange situation where you've got a former president, a winner of the South Carolina primary and Bill Clinton out campaigning for his wife, Hillary Clinton, former first lady, but also senator from New York. And, uh, you know, they got testy. Uh, There were even some comments that Bill Clinton made where he kind of compared Barack Obama's victory to to some of the performances of Jesse Jackson. And there was a feeling like, oh, well, maybe he was trying to diminish what Obama had accomplished. And so uh, it got uh, a 
ugly. Uh, you know, obviously the Clintons and the Obamas have patched things up, and, 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 and of course Hillary Clinton ended up serving Secretary of State in the Obama administration. But it was a very, very hotly contested primary, and also it was one of the primaries where Democrats and Republicans held primaries. They, it was you know both in two thousand eight. Uh, McCain won in 2008 in South Carolina. Obama won in 2008 on the Democratic side. And notably, there were more people that cast votes in the Democratic primary. I think that's an underappreciated and undertold story. Over 500,000 South Carolina uh, voters went out and cast ballots in the Democratic primary, about 445,000 in the uh, Republican primary. And it just shows, you know, if you have a compelling candidate, somebody that people are excited about, there was a lot of attention on that. There was a really strong turnout. That's been one of the highest turnout primaries in South Carolina primary history. And again, media, money, endorsements. Neighbor didn't really count in the Democrats in 2000. And mm-hmm. That's right. And, and, and again, it was a situation where John Edwards, who you know is a Southern candidate, and you know when you look at the big picture overall, Southern candidates have tended to do a little bit better. But in this particular contest, uh, John Edwards, being from a neighboring state, being a Southern candidate, didn't seem to, to be enough for him. He was going up against two, you know, really, you know, Obama super dynamic, fresh face, a lot of momentum, and Hillary Clinton, this universal name recognition establishment figure with deep ties in South Carolina. And so it was hard for Edwards uh, to really get much oxygen with Obama and Clinton going head to head. On that point, I mean, one of the things that's maybe surprising in the book is that we don't find that there's much of an effect for a candidate who ran previously in the South Carolina primary in, in subsequent races. I mean, you would think that logically, if you ran four years previously in, in, a, in a South Carolina primary, you might have a natural advantage the second time around. But we find that that's not the case. And of course, John Edwards, as Gibbs said, from 2004 to 2008 is an example of that. That's relevant to the current contest that we're having. You know, A lot of people have said that, well, this is Bernie Sanders' second time around, and he's not going to repeat the mistakes that he made in 2016. Yet, if you believe some of the current polling, it seems like he's poised for a distant second or, or third place finish. Okay. And so that brings us up to, to the present. There is no Republican primary in 2020. Yeah, we were thinking about our book sales, uh, and we we're like, "Oh man, we need a we need a Republican <laughs> primary." But uh, the South Carolina GOP uh, wasn't listening to us on that. But no, in all seriousness, uh, you know, there there are examples. You know, 1992, where George H. W. Bush was the incumbent, and he was challenged, and the South Carolina GOP decided to have a primary, and that really helped him out. It really sent a message that we back our president. Uh, the leaders today, here in 2020, you know, decided that it didn't make sense to have a primary, even though. Uh, Bill Weld is running. Uh, Mark Sanford was running. Our former governor not running anymore. And so it is all all focuses on 2020 for the Democrats. The Democrats didn't have a primary in 2012. They did not, exactly. Yeah, I mean, so one of the things is there's certainly a precedent on both sides of the aisle for canceling a primary. I mean, it's really not something that's historically that unusual. Republicans didn't hold a primary in South Carolina in 1984 when Ronald Reagan was running for re-election, and they didn't have one in 2004 when George W. Bush was running for re-election. On the Democratic side of the aisle, um, there was no primary in 2012 when Obama was running for re-election, and then, of course, they didn't have one in 1996 when when Clinton was running for re-election. So there's certainly a precedent for doing it. You know, it makes sense from the party standpoint. The last thing that they want to do is potentially open up some wounds and expose some divisions between different factions within the party. So um, I actually don't think it's that uh, unusual for the Republicans to cancel their well, primary. You know, I, that, that's, that was the, the point I wanted you to make because people threw up, oh, this is terrible. It's, you know, it's never happened before. That's right. Exactly. Uh, and, you know, and it's hard, you know, you have to figure out, okay, well, if you, ha- if you are challenged, you know, what is a, what is a legitimate challenge? What type of candidate or what do they need to be polling against an incumbent to go ahead and hold a primary? It is, it's, it's, it's a big undertaking. It's an expensive endeavor. And so what it has done is it's left really the stage for the Democrats. And, and, and because there's not a Democratic incumbent president, you know, South Carolina is going to play a, a really important role in who ends up uh, being the Democratic nominee and likely facing Donald Trump in 2020. All right. Gentlemen, we need to pause a moment to let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Gibbs Knotts and Jordan Ragusa about their book, First in the South. 
uh, we had we had moved on to to twenty twenty. But looking back over the history of the primary, going back to 1980 in South Carolina, the presidential primaries, we talked about you know money, media, endorsements. What kind of threads do you see there to connect 40 years of? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that's really interesting is that diversity is important on both sides of the aisle. You know, on the Republican side, we're talking about you know a diverse mix of types of Republican voters. I mean, we've talked about different groups that are critical on the Republican side, veterans and non-veterans, college graduates and non-graduates, social conservatives and economic conservatives. So there's a big mix. And, you know, one of the things that the Republican Party talked about early on in in devising this primary is that they thought that it would open up to a broad group of of people. And and certainly the, the data that we've looked at indicates that that's the case. You know, on the Democratic side, we're talking about racial diversity. Diversity. Um, you know, the, the Democratic Party has undergone a transformation over the last hundred years. Currently, you know, African Americans are a critical component of the, of the Democratic constituency. And so it's hard to imagine uh, the group of early states not including a state in the South that has a sizable African American population. So these are things that kind of run throughout the primary's history from its inception to the present. Well, when the Dem- Democrats first began holding their primary, White voters were still a majority in the Democratic primary. That has that has changed. The demographic has changed over the last twenty years. That's exactly right. You know, we we you know close to sixty percent of uh, voters in the twenty sixteen Democratic primary were African American, and we certainly expect that to be about the same in twenty twenty. I mean, it's going to be a super important voting group. You talk about diversity and race, and I think about the African American candidates who've dropped out of the Democratic race, who never seem to get any traction in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, so like someone like Al Sharpton in in two thousand four you know, ran in South Carolina and didn't really do well. And, you know, we make an argument that, you know, race is critically important in the Democratic contest and that African-American candidates have a a natural built-in advantage in South Carolina. I mean, certainly that's true in 2008 with Obama. You know, it's true in 84 and 88 before the state had a primary, still had a caucus on the Democratic side with Jesse Jackson. Um, But, you know, there are one of the things that's both challenging but also fun when studying politics is that things are constantly in flux and there's the these idiosyncratic factors that can matter from one contest to the next. So in 2004, you know, John Edwards being born in South Carolina, being from neighboring uh, North Carolina, representing North Carolina in the U.S. Senate, certainly mattered in, in that contest. So even though Al Sharpton was an African-American candidate, I think Edwards appealed to a lot of voters in the state you know, explains why that was kind of anomalous. And in 2020, you know, certainly we were looking at Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, expecting them to to maybe catch fire in South Carolina. It looked like a state that, you know, they could follow the path of Barack Obama, do well in Iowa, and then come to South Carolina and do really well. They've now dropped out. And this support for Biden has been really, really strong. You know, Biden uh, it was the, the, the eight-year vice president for Barack Obama, the first African-American president in United States history. Biden has a long history in the state. He has familiarity uh, with uh, political leaders uh, in South Carolina, African-American uh, political leaders in South Carolina. And so, again, it, it is it is a little bit surprising that uh, that Biden has been so consistent and so strong in the state, particularly in light of some of the previous findings. But again, it could it, you know this is you know, we're in the era of Trump right now, and, and it's a very different situation. And you know I think there could be an element of practicality. It's you know who has the best chance to beat Donald Trump, and in a lot of people's eyes, that's Joe Biden. Okay, but then some key figures: the mayor of Columbia, Steve Benjamin. Yes, did not endorse Joe Biden. He, That's right. He's Bloomberg. Yeah, right. And so interesting. And Bloomberg is not on the ballot in the South Carolina primary, although I think I woke up this morning hearing some Bloomberg ads. And so he's he's hitting the airwaves nonetheless. But, you know, I, there are a lot of people, you know, locally down in Charleston. We've got Marlon Kimson, the state senator, Marvin Pendarvis, a state representative. I would I would certainly think of them as two up and coming uh, high profile South Carolina political leaders, both African-American are backing Joe Biden. They didn't jet back Joe Biden initially. I think Marlon Kimson has come on a little bit more recently. But 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 I do think that Joe Biden has has a lot of momentum in the state right now. OK, 
As we look at the, at the issue in, in general, what do you predict in the, in the future? The big, to me, the big thing about our state's primaries are that they're, oh, it's open. What's going to happen, do you think, if it becomes a closed primary? Well, you know, so Republicans are really the ones that are talking about potentially closing the primary. And so when we talk about closed primaries, what we mean is that it would only be open to registered Republicans. You know, it's it's interesting in that one of the arguments that Republicans made in 1979 and 1980 is that by having an open primary, you would have this diverse mix of people that would participate. And, you know, we argue in the book that it's actually one of the main strengths of the Republican primary in, in South Carolina. So in some ways, closing it off would maybe undermine one of its its key strengths. Now, that's not to say that there aren't reasonable arguments for why you would want a closed primary. I mean, there are concerns with primary rating, which we talked about a little bit uh, earlier. You know, obviously, Republicans don't want Democrats voting um, in their primary and potentially causing mischief. So it's one of those things where there are natural trade-offs in, in any political change. There are some positives and there are some negatives. Well, what about the impact of national endorsements in South Carolina? Has that local endorsements more important than national? Yeah, we, we think that we think that, you know, getting support from the governor or the senator or an influential state representative has a bigger impact. You know, there's a little bit of a sense in South Carolina, you know, probably going back to the Civil War of, you know, not necessarily wanting the national folks to tell us what to do down here in this state. Uh, and I think that, that that's carried over into today's day and age. And, and that's a challenge for Democrats, too, because, you know, uh, you know, if Nancy Pelosi came in and endorsed somebody in South Carolina, she's obviously the speaker. Speaker of the House and uh, super powerful in Washington, but that may not be something that helps uh, South Carolina voters. One of the things we found was that South Carolina Democrats, in addition to being uh, more diverse racially, uh, also are, tend to be a little bit more conservative than national Democrats. Uh, and, and so, you know, that the, the national endorsements, I think, are less important than what's going on here at the state level. Okay. Um You've got several quotes that, that you that you end with. Jordan, how about reading the top paragraph on page 124? Because I think that kind of tells us a lot. And it's almost the thesis of your book. Mm -hmm. yeah, so we write, we are certainly not the only ones to argue for the importance of South Carolina's primary in, pre in the presidential race. A number of politicians and political strategists have recognized the key role of the state's first in the South primary. A common refrain is that in South Carolina, we pick presidents, uh, a phrase popularized by Republican leaders after Reagan's victory in the first primary in 1980. Steve Benjamin, the Democratic mayor of Columbia, South Carolina, said the road to the White House starts in South Carolina. South Carolina's former Republican governor, David Beasley, labels the state the, quote, gateway to the South, while David Pluff, Barack Obama's former campaign manager, calls South Carolina the, quote, gateway to the nomination. In addition to the gateway label, a range of superlatives are often used to describe the South Carolina primary, including tiebreaker, make or break, and firewall. Okay. And I want that last term, I want, to, I want you all to explicate that for us. Firewall. The firewall. It's, I mean, a firewall is, you know, you're in danger and this is, South Carolina is going to make the difference, going to protect you. So certainly huge in 2016 for Hillary Clinton. Uh, you know, it was a way to sure up support, and, and it really has the potential to be the firewall for Joe Biden in 2020. I mean, polling, you know, Joe Biden at every indication is this is a real point of strength for Joe Biden. And so if his campaign is threatened in some way, South Carolina can be a state that kind of gets him back on track. And again, because South Carolina is the first southern state and then other southern states come really quickly afterwards, that can be really important to catapult Biden to the nomination. And South Carolina was a firewall for George W. Bush. That's exactly right. For George W. Bush as well, back in 2000. Okay. All right, gentlemen, Alfred's giving me the wind-up sign. Any last words for our listeners before we sign off? I would say one of the things that, um, you know, we talk about in the book is that, you know, South Carolina has this really underappreciated role in national politics. I mean, Iowa and New Hampshire get a lot of attention, and that's certainly deserved, um, but people have maybe neglected South Carolina a, a little bit. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people that listen to the show who are, you know, savvy when it comes to politics recognize that South Carolina is really important, but I think a lot of people outside of the state maybe don't see how critically important it is, and it's one of the reasons why we wrote the book. 
All right. Gibbs? Yeah. I think, you know, I'd say if you're if you're listening out there, you know, enjoy living in an early primary state. There are so many opportunities to see campaigns, to see candidates, to ask them questions. You know, it's really it, it's a lot of it's a lot of responsibility, but an important responsibility for South Carolinians to to ask these candidates tough questions and to really weigh uh, who's going to be the nominee for both Republicans and Democrats. It's it's, it's important responsibility, uh, but it's something that South Carolinians have. Uh, a lot of opportunity to influence national policy, and uh, and they should go out and, and take advantage of it. All right. Well, Gibbs Knotts and Jordan Ragusa, both professors of political science at the College of Charleston and the co-directors of the American Political Research Team, thanks so much for being with us today on The Journal. Thanks for having us. Thank you. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. The history of the presidential political primary in South Carolina is a fascinating one. And in their book, Gibbs Knotts and Jordan Ragusa underscore the importance of the Palmetto State in the eventual selection of candidates for national office. In both parties, South Carolina voters have a better success rate than the voters of Iowa and New Hampshire. That, folks, is part of South Carolina history. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio. 